0: Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the General's politics podcast, The Loyal Opposition Edition. Despite my raspy voice, I am your host, Sarah O'Donnell. It is April 10th, 2014, and with me today in the newsroom studio to review the state of provincial affairs are Provincial Affairs reporter Karen Cleese. Hi, Sarah. Columnist Paula Simons. Hello. And political columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. We have, with good reason, dedicated a great deal of time in the last few weeks to the Progressive Conservative Party, its upheaval and questions of leadership in the wake of Alison Redford's decision to step down as Premier. This week seemed like a good time to remember that there are actually other political parties in Alberta, so we want to take a look at what those parties have been doing and how they've been performing. Are they taking advantage of this golden opportunity as the PCs regroup? Maybe we'll get to that question, maybe not, I guess we'll see. It makes sense to start with the official opposition. Karen, can you talk about the issues that the Wild Rose have been raising in the last week now that the legislature is back in session?
1: Well, this week we we saw the Wild Rose start unrolling some of these Freedom of Information Act requests that we've been hearing they've had for quite a long time. I think what triggered it is that Alison Redford uh, has left, and I think they were holding on to a lot of these for the election. And so we we saw them roll out this week a huge uh, access to information request uh, that detailed um, $250 million in spending on consultants over an 18-month period from April of 2012 to 2013. Um, It's an extraordinary figure. They of course parsed it out by day and said half a million dollars a day. And, and this was all f- consultants for Alberta Health Services,
2: not for not for Alberta Health, but for AHS, the the health agency. That's okay. right. So
1: they were they were mostly uh, IT contracts, uh, but there were some executive coaching contracts in there, which they made a lot of hay out of because the uh, the executives were were being we're well finding their zen basically Uh, art consulting uh, yeah art consulting thirteen thousand dollars to check out the art down in the calgary region uh it made a lot of waves um and uh, and then the very next day, sort of it was a one-two punch. They released information about a, a massive 250000 contract that was given to a former AHS employee one day after she retired with an $800,000 pension. So they have absolutely... Uh, it's been no holds barred this week for the Wild Rose. And that, that to me... I mean, the $250 million is obviously larger than
2: $250,000, but the $250,000-collar contract was so particularly egregious because it wasn't tendered. It was a single-source contract that went to a former executive vice president of AHS to do consulting work the day after she stopped being a vice president. I mean, that is, I mean it is the perfect illustration of double-dipping, and it's exactly why you're not supposed to do things this way.
0: Now, Fred Horn did issue a bit of a caution yesterday in the legislature. He said, you know, w- this is information that is available through the Freedom of Information request. He said this may not be all the facts and he cautioned everyone not to judge too quickly. So, uh, But Graham, <laughs> let, let's, judge, let's <laughs> judge quickly. Um, let's, let's ignore that <laughs> exactly. advice completely. Well, that's just it,
3: right? Um, when they mention $250 million and they pop up a few of these small examples that are ridiculous, you know, the art um, con- uh, they're actually looking at artwork and things like that. Even though those are relatively small amounts out of $250 million, it makes you wonder about overall. If they're spending, was at $13,000 on art consultants?
2: And that's, that's not for the art. I mean, to spend money for art for public buildings is one thing. This is for art consultants.
3: So uh, you're, you're thinking, okay, fine. If they can, in a sense, point to a few of these ridiculous, uh, sounds like ridiculous amounts of money being spent, then what else are they misspending on $250 million? Maybe, And they've actually said themselves, the Wild Roses said, maybe these contracts are completely legitimate and they're good ideas and we need them, but we don't know. And so by pointing to some um, ridiculous examples, it makes you wonder about the rest of them. So they're being very effective at painting this whole $250 million as a waste of money.
1: and I think that's what we're seeing in Alberta now is an extraordinarily effective opposition. Uh, Horn's... Uh Admonition in the legislature really rings hollow. I mean, this is this is one of the most powerful governments in Canadian history. Uh, They are in charge of what gets released as part of an access to information request. They cannot, after releasing limited information under an access to information request, then claim that the person who's making the criticism doesn't have adequate information to criticize. I mean, this government should be releasing more information under access to information. They don't, and then they criticize opposition parties when they don't have all the facts. So I think. It's a bit circuitous of Horn to say that. And uh, I think Graham is right. I mean, the Wild Rose is using it to their advantage. You know, Horn's other argument was that these were
2: one-time expenses incurred when AHS was set up which doesn't quite match the timeline because the, the data was supposed to be from 2011 and 2012, which is long after AHS was set up. I mean, it's almost an effort to say somehow this is Ed Stelmach's fault. I, mean, I guess, you know, last week everything was Alison Redford's fault. This week everything can be Ed Stelmack's fault. And soon everything
1: will be Don Getty's fault or Harry Strom's <laughs> fault.
0: I'm sure Harry Strom is to blame for it all.
1: When we're talking about the government reaction, which I think we're going to get to next, um, we what we saw from government when the AHS information hit the ground uh, was... Uh, remarkable, actually, from a reporter's perspective. Alberta Health Services, first of all, said that this was political and ought not be handled by AHS, and then uh, handed it over to Horn, who took three questions on his way into question period. I mean, reporters were shouting and chasing him. He was not answering questions. And then uh, it was an issue, obviously, in the House during question period. And then sometime late in the afternoon, Alberta Health Services started tweeting information on Twitter. And so this got everybody's back up in the press gallery, and I started actually asking questions on Twitter, saying, well, if this is the forum in which we need to ask questions of public figures now. This is where we're going to do it. And that finally pressured them into having Alberta Health Services call Dean Bennett from the Canadian Press and myself from, from the Edmonton Journal. And so we did end up getting answers. But um, to, to, I've never really seen anything like that in terms of government response. Uh, and it was, it was really, really something. They were not prepared.
3: You get the impression right now, because there's no real leader, there is a premier, we know that, Dave Hancock. But you get the sense right now, they're not actually organized. And it's things like Ken Hughes' non-announcement for leadership. These are small examples. We get the sense that there's there's nobody really steering the ship. Hancock is there. Um, he's interim leader. He's the premier, yada, yada, yada. But you get the sense there's no strong hand on that tiller right now organizing the caucus, organizing them in terms of being ready for question period or how to, res- how to respond to these questions.
2: Plus, of course, they're all distracted themselves. I mean, Fred Horn certainly in the last round of leadership uh, was doing some very serious tire-kicking about making a run for the leadership in the race that ultimately Alison Redford ran, uh, I imagine that Fred Horn has been thinking about running for the leadership again. Running as the leader after being the health minister. I mean, the health ministry is almost the kiss of death for anybody with future political ambitions. But, you know, it can't, it can't be helping him as he's trying to figure out whether he can make a legitimate run for the leader, that it's been his week to be targeted by, uh, by the Wildrose and so effectively.
1: And, and to, to put a, a nice fine point on it, our topic today, the Wild Rose has been relentless this week.
0: So the Wild Rose, if they've been relentless, how have the Liberals been doing? It's interesting. They, they took
3: over uh, an issue this week um, of the Gay-Straight Alliances in schools. Uh, uh, Kent Hare, Liberal MLA, brought up a motion, not a bill, it's a motion, which is just a suggestion to government that the government should actually allow students who want a Gay-Straight Alliance in their schools the school then should be required to actually have a gay-straight alliance. Um, so it's not a, its not forcing alliances on every school. It's not a bill. It's just an idea. And the liberals put this forward. And uh, I called it sort of a trap. And it wasn't a trap. But Kent Harris says it wasn't a trap. But you just see who actually fell in. The Wild Rose all voted against the motion. Uh, and a number of uh, 22 um, government MLAs voted against it. The NDP and Liberals voted in favor. Uh, another dozen um, government MLAs voted in favor of it, and to me, this was a very interesting um, example. Liberals are trying to, take us take over the the social um, moderate position in the House, and this had all kinds of um, echoes of the 2012 election, the Lake of Fire I- incident, and the election campaign where you had one of the uh, Candidates for the Wild Rose had a blog, it was um, calling gays and homosexuals damned for all eternity. So this is interesting how the government played this. They, they, they had a chance to isolate the Wild Rose as being the one intolerant party, and they, they didn't do it that way, they went off in their own direction, which meant that now you got the Wild Rose and a good chunk of the conservative caucus, to me, appearing to be intolerant on this issue.
1: What was interesting about that, too, is that it it raised the question in the press gallery about whether or not that vote was whipped on behalf of the Tories. And if not, why not? Uh, Because, as Graham points out, it was a a really good opportunity had they come out full force in favor of a motion, which, once again, is not a bill. They're not forcing anybody to do anything. They're just saying that, in principle, we believe in this idea they could have painted the wild rose into a corner and and really pointed at them. And Manmeet Boulard stood up in the legislature yesterday and called them the Lake of Fire Party. Well, the problem is there's some serious there's some serious uh, backdraft now onto the Tory Party. Well, the problem was
0: that 22 of the votes came from the Progressive Conservatives against that motion, yes, right? Exactly. More
2: than the wild rose. And, and it's, but it's interesting to look at. Me, look who voted in favor. Thomas I think I might want to be your next premier Lucas oh, and, it, and <laughs> you know you know and and yeah. and and you know so it was interesting to see the way the Tories split now you know you can argue and I've seen people who I wouldn't consider homophobes argue that Cant Hare's motion was kind of poorly worded. Um, but really, I think it's not so much that people are homophobes. It's also that people are afraid of ta- tackling Catholic education in this province, which is a real uh, can of worms nobody wants to open.
0: So was this a win for the liberals or was it more a, a loss for other people and, and i don't necessarily want to keep score like that on something like this but you are
3: yeah i guess <laughs> and, we I, all, yeah. and we all do these things i would say it's a win for the liberals it's a win for, okay win for kent hair mm. i've the liberals as a group i still find not very effective they have some really strong mlas individually i call it i call it the anti-gestalt theory where the they're stronger individually than they are as, as a group um, and so people like Kent Hare are very strong representatives. He, he's been on this issue about uh, really promoting public schools, and I think that this, this reflects well on him. Does it reflect well on the liberals, less so, more on Kent Hare? Uh,
1: we should throw in there, too, that Raj was effective this week on the Navigator contracts. We saw that the government had given $500,000 in contracts to Navigator, which, is, which bills itself as a high-stakes communications firm. Um, those contracts were interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, two of the most senior people in Navigator worked directly on Redford's uh, 2012 election campaign and are in some quarters credited with rescuing her from defeat. Um, Also, importantly, uh, several of those contracts, three, if I recall correctly, were just under the $75,000 tendering threshold, which Raj was very effective. I mean. hashtag PC PorkFest was quite possibly the most hysterical hashtag of the week in, in uh in um, Alberta politics. And and you know that was Raj. So, you know, in addition to the, the Bill f- or the motion five oh three, I think the Navigator contracts added considerably to the power that the Wild Rose gained from from their consultants work.
2: And, and I think also that Liberal leader Raj Sherman had a bit of a win on the uh, the issue of the cancer clusters in Fort Chip. Um he was very effective in speaking to the Edmonton Journal's Marty Klinkenberg about the- this because he didn't go off half cocked, he didn't sound wildly alarmist. He sounded very measured when he said that that cancer cluster may or may not be related to oil sands activities, but that it's disturbing enough that it bears further investigation. So I think Graham's right. The liberals, I think, are still punching below what their collective weight ought to be. But I think they had a collection of very good moments this week.
0: How'd the NDP do? They're usually a group that punches above. Their weight for a four-person caucus, but they've been—have they been quiet? Is it just my imagination? It seems like they've been more quiet than usual.
1: This week from the NDP, I just wrote a story in today's paper about uh, Darren Billis's work on the influence of the oil companies in in uh, Alberta education and and the structure of the new uh, curriculum for for kids in Alberta. Um, he's been effective on that. Yesterday was a bit of a gong show. They marched up there with a with a twenty six thousand member petition um and knocked on Jeff Johnson's door only to find it locked uh that was a show uh Johnson said later that his staff was out at a um at a at an important meeting and that, that they weren't aware that the that the NDP were coming and and may well have been there had they known uh and i think it's notable too that this the petition only contained one quarter of those signatures from Alberta and it was a, a left-leaning sort of progressive online organization that collected them not the not the NDP themselves um so there there were some Interesting responses to the n d s work on that file, but certainly um, Darren Billis has brought significant attention to this issue, and I think you know it certainly merits public debate and I think Rachel Notley
2: also had a good week um in responding to uh... the sort of preliminary report from the child welfare roundtable uh... she pointed out some really serious systemic problems with what's been proposed that although the roundtable report does suggest things that would be i think improvements to the child death review system uh... notley pointed out that there's still far too many things in it that are internal that would be kept secret and she raised some really really important points about the fact that the child and youth advocate just doesn't have the budget to kind of do the effective oversight that that report requires So I don't think the NDP had a non-existent week, but I don't think that they were able to seize the public policy agenda. They were mostly reactive rather than pushing the ball down the field.
1: Uh, we should also point out that NDP leader Brian Mason uh, had perhaps the funniest comment in the House this week when he said, in response to Dave Hancock, who was, you know, um, singing the praises of Alberta's stable government, he stood up and said, "Well, North Korea has one of the most stable governments <laughs> in the world as well," <laughs> and uh, I think it brought the House down. Certainly, everybody was howling in the press gallery. So,
3: <laughs> I think overall, this is you, the first day I thought was relatively quiet on Monday when you resume, but it's got a lot more lively as the weeks progressed, and so we're seeing a government that's not really on its game, being attacked by pretty effective opposition um, questions in the House this week, which is why this government wants to get this session over as quickly as possible, whether, pass the budget, and then get out.
2: Whether the opposition is being as effective as they could be, given the complete disarray of the government, is a slightly different question. I think that uh, you know, if the government's running a C minus game, I would say the opposition's doing about a B plus.
0: How has Dave Hancock handled his first week back in session as premier?
3: Uh, you know, as, as Dave Hancock, you know, he's very capable, dull, um, smart. He's actually what he's done. He's actually brought back the daily news briefings. One o'clock every day, he's available to talk to the media. We have not seen that since Ralph Klein was premier every day during a session, three o'clock to be a news conference with Ralph Klein. Didn't see it under Stalmach, who just hated being in front of a microphone. Although Redford, he did at
2: least do, what, two, two a week? Uh,
3: he, did, he did a lot fewer than, um, than uh, Klein ever did. And then Redford would just disappear for weeks or months on end.
1: As a reporter, I have to say that having hancock do a daily presser is a is a dramatic remarkable i i there are not enough superlatives to say having access to people in power is so crucial for our jobs that i don't think that uh that I can say thank you enough to the people who made that happen. Um, it was it was really it was really impossible working under Redford. I mean, the reality is we we serve our, our readers here, and we need to have access to people in power in order to get responses to things. Now Hancock, of course, is a master, and any reporter who's ever interviewed him knows that he is the uh, the king of the off ramp. He can he can you know sometimes you have to. Uh, ask really direct questions four times over to get an answer out of Hancock. So, you know, he is a master. They're wise to put him up. Redford Redford had a very short fuse and, and would just march off and, and leave reporters fuming. So... Uh, Hancock's a good choice for this particular approach. But, but this is so canny,
2: right? I mean, to to make the, to pull the reporters so that they can't be dogging the cabinet ministers on their way in, <laughs> to make it so that the, you know, the, the opposition leaders have no right of reply. Dave Hancock also understands parliamentary procedure and the rules of the House better than anyone. He's been House leader since forever. And uh, this is a pretty good example of just how clever and canny he can be.
0: Premier Hancock did receive some questions yesterday in his daily briefing about... When P- Alison Redford is going to return to the legislature, she is continuing to sit as MLA for Calgary Elbow, but has not been in her chair in the legislature.
1: What What do we know about that right now, Karen and Graham? Is there? Well, this is this is a huge question, right? When will Redford return to the legislature? Um, on the one hand, I think there's a, a recognition in the halls of the legislature that she's been through a rough time and it might not be so easy to come back. But on the other hand, uh, there's this suggestion that she is still being paid by taxpayers to represent the people of Calgary Elbow. So I'll let Graham talk a little bit about the politics there, but it's definitely on the minds of virtually everybody every day.
3: Right, and because a bigger issue. as long as she's not there, we start asking more questions about it. She was supposed to turn up on Wednesday, yesterday. Um, we were told, by good sources, she would be there, and then apparently she changed her mind and decided not to, to turn up. The opposition right now is giving her some breathing room, thinking, okay, fine, now give her a few days. Uh, the, op- the NDP says give her a week, and then we'll see what happens next week. Um, yeah, so it's, a tough, um, it's a, it'd be a tough walk for her to actually walk back in there and be a backbencher, basically. So I think on a human level, they're saying give her some time, but Karen is right. At some point, people are start saying, well, where is she? We also have a lot of questions for her. What will likely happen is she'll come back in, we'll grab her in the hallway, we can scrum her, hopefully, and get some answers out of her. And then it may sort of die as an issue after that, unless there's more things from the opposition tying her to some, some other scandal. If she can address some of these issues of Sky Palace and things like the severance packages, then it, it will tend to die, I think, her being in the house. Because what's going to happen The session will be another three or four weeks, and then it's gone for the summer. Of course, the question is, why is she even sticking around as an MLA? Um, that's another question we're going to ask her about that. But I think the party does not want her to step down. If she was to step down, it would force a by-election, and they would lose that by-election more than likely in Calgary.
1: I also think on a personal level for Redford I mean it's kind of like ripping the band-aid off that first day that she comes back she's going to be hounded by the press I mean we have not heard from her on the Sky Palace which is was perhaps the most explosive story of the year so far uh, set aside from her resignation um, you know that that requires some accountability
0: well maybe we'll see her next week in the legislature I guess we can we can talk about that next week So last week, I put a call out to listeners in the hopes of creating a press gallery playlist, a compilation of songs that press gallery regulars and listeners would use for their own personal campaigns. We're getting there. The playlist is coming together. But I'm going to wait till next week when I have more of a voice because the less talking I do right now, the better. And we certainly don't want any singing from me at this point. So let's move to our regular good stuff from the gallery. Paula, do you want to start? I do want to start. Uh, I have a
2: recommendation from the New York Times Magazine. It's a piece called The Wolf Hunters of Wall Street by Michael Lewis, and it's an excerpt from his book, Flash Boys, A Wall Street Revolt, which is about uh, uncovering the impact of high frequency trading on Wall Street. That may sound like something that would make your eyes cross, but Michael Lewis is a great writer, and there's a real Canadian connection here because the hero of Michael Lewis's story is very much a Canadian named Brad Katsuyama, who was a trader with RBC, with the Royal Bank, uh, who uncovered the high-frequency trading and came up with a method called Thor to defeat it. So if you want to read about a very nice Canadian boy who goes to New York and makes a revolution, uh, New York Times Magazine,
1: The Wolf Hunters of
0: Wall Street. I love it. Karen, what have you got?
1: So uh, my recommendation is, also comes from the New York Times. It's a, a four-part series by Errol Morris, the documentary filmmaker who recently produced a documentary about Rumsfeld. And the reason I'm recommending that four-part series is because in the first part, he uh, he gives people a remarkable amount of insight into what it's like to ask a politician a question. Uh, Rumsfeld, like Hancock, was one of the the great masters of the off-ramp and and. Morris in that first day actually talks to all of the reporters, uh, who were in the room with, um, with Rumsfeld when he made the famous Unknowables, the unknowable knowables comment that that, you know, moved around the, the internet at the at the speed of light when it happened. So and this is all in the work up to the, the Iraq war. So it's really fascinating, uh, the way that he he pulls apart the interview that Rumsfeld did that day and, and the way that the reporters were trying to get him on the record. So I really highly recommend that. It's in the New York Times and it's by Errol Morris. I'm gonna recommend something pretty close to home.
0: It is a story from Journal reporter Ryan Cormier that ran in Monday's paper, but it's about legal aid, and it's called Legal Aid Alberta in Financial Crisis, and the subhead was the future's bleak as chronic underfunding leads to a looming cash shortfall. And what Ryan points out in his story is that right now, people who qualify for AISH, which is Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped, some of those people earn too much money to qualify for legal aid. This is a huge problem for our court system, I'm going to let Ryan's story speak for itself as much as possible, but I do highly recommend that. And we'll post the links to all of these. Graham, a good stuff from you.
3: Yeah, it's uh, one of the um, latest uh, documentaries on CBC's Doc Zone. It's called The Mystery of the Bell Rebellion, Murder, and Myth on the Canadian Frontier. And this is, um, the, look at the history of a bell. According to, I'm reading from here from their press release, according to legend, this is the bell that was stolen from the church in Batosh, Saskatchewan. Canadian soldiers after they defeated Louis Riel and his Métis fighters in 1885. And this bell popped up again recently, but it turns out it was a different bell that popped up. <laughs> they got the wrong bell. The bell they got is from Frog Lake, uh, oh. Frog Lake Massacre in Alberta. So this is actually looking at the history. And uh, where's the real bell? Well, apparently it'll be um, shown in the documentary, which airs tonight. It's, it's April 10th. But, of course, uh, you can see it again in it's Also, It's on online on their... Um, their uh, webpage on cbc
0: that sounds really good i heard a teaser for that this morning on cbc radio and it kind of had me
1: hooked i'll second the recommendation on ryan's story as well that was a remarkably good story about legal aid in alberta hugely important
0: so that's it for this week you can check out a video segment from the show along with the podcast thanks to our producer and multimedia journalist ryan jackson please do let us know what you think of the video We, we would love your your input on that to find the video and previous shows, go to EdmontonJournal.com and dive into the opinion section. The Press Gallery is also posted on SoundCloud and iTunes, and you can connect with us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thepressgallery. We've got more than 100 likes now. That's a milestone. I'm, I'm going to brag a little bit about it, even though it's not a lot of likes, but we're doing pretty well. We will be back next week in the Press Gallery.